You're listening to Changemaker. Ideas on social impact. Lessons on life and business. Stories from people making a difference. I'm Jackie Biederman. As a parent, I'm reminded all the time of how much I don't know. I want to tell you a quick story. So I was picking up my son from kindergarten a couple years ago, and he was really crabby. He wouldn't listen, he was talking back, and then he started pushing his little sister around. So when we got home, I put him in a timeout. But then my husband went over to him and started to ask him about his day, which was kind of surprising because he was supposed to be taking a break. But they talked, and it turns out that our son had a bad day at school because he was getting teased by somebody. Now this was like the first time that that happened, and of course as parents you don't want your kid to be picked on. And so he was telling us what happened, and through tears, He told us that a boy in his class called him a poop nugget. (laughs) I know. And at the time, my husband and I had to turn away from him so he couldn't see us holding back our laughter. But these words obviously hurt his feelings. So we talked and we hugged, and his mood completely changed. It was like a load was lifted from him, and he was himself again. So what I learned is that I might not know the whole story. I saw a problem, our son had a bad attitude, and my fix was to punish him. But my husband dug a little bit deeper to find the real problem. He was getting teased, and the better solution was to talk about it and to tell him that we care. There's a lot that we don't know, but knowing what we don't know can lead us to something better. Today we'll hear from people who didn't have all the answers and found success by knowing that. Gaia Datar spent years as a consultant, specializing in global development. Like a lot of consultants, she learned how to solve problems quickly and efficiently. But while earning her MBA, she took a class that challenged everything she knew about problem solving. And this led her to a solution that's helped thousands of people. The class is called Design for Extreme Affordability, and it's offered at the Stanford D School. And the point of the class is to get people of various different disciplines together to work on a product or a service for the base of the pyramid. They were given a challenge to design a product or service that makes homes or communities healthier. So when we got the challenge, I was like, oh, cook stoves, I know the answer. So she had a hypothesis, but those weren't allowed. And this kind of broke my brain in some ways because instead everything that I had been you know, trained to, to do before, which was have a hypothesis, go in and answer the questions and figure it all out. Um, instead, it was very much about just, just don't come in with any pre-existing judgments. Don't really have a hypothesis. Former President Dwight D. Eisenhower put it like this, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. If you're designing a solution to improve someone's home, you should probably talk to them and see how they live. So over spring break, Gaia traveled with her class to Rwanda. And on this trip, she wasn't solving problems. She was finding them. So went there and just asked questions. So for example, like, tell me about some of the things that you want to improve about your home. And these mothers would say things like, oh, I, wanna, I want to improve the roof. And they're like, okay, great, why? And then they would say, because when it leaks, uh, my floor gets muddy. And it's like, okay, well, why is that a problem? And then they would say, because then all these bugs start entering in the home. And they'd ask, why is that a problem? And they say, because my kids get sick. And why is that a problem? And as you ask why (laughs) over and over and over again, you just get to the heart of so many issues. 
I mean, at the end of the day, the leaky roof was causing uh, the floor to be muddy and therefore to have to get their kids sick. And so that's when, you know, she said roof, but what if we were to solve the same problem with, with the floor instead? I want to point out that kids getting sick here is a big deal. Dirt floors can cause asthma, malnutrition, parasitic infections, and diarrhea. And diarrhea is one of the leading causes of childhood death in Rwanda. So Gaia watched how people live day to day. She was invited into their homes and helped with their chores. And she started to notice things, like how frustrating it was to drop clean laundry on the floor because you had to clean it again, or the fact that you can't sit on your floor. Not to mention kids are pooping and peeing all over the floor because they're kids and they don't have diapers because diapers are obviously way too expensive and then can't really clean that up. So often I go to customers' homes and there's this stench of, of you know, waste and that, that really makes sense because it's impossible to clean a dirt floor. But people sweep them and there's dust everywhere. I get sinus infections all the time and I don't even live in a village. Like I just, I just go there every day. But as a result, you can really start to see why kids are always coughing, why they have bug bites all over their legs, why it just, it's so obvious. And it's because of this stupid floor. And the reason no one can upgrade their dirt floor is because concrete's just ridiculously expensive. Nearly everything came back to the dirt floor, even things that Gaia couldn't see. Sure, it's, it's of course, people's poverty that makes them um, have a low-quality home and not have a floor and not have, not have a nicer home. But that home and that low-quality home is what makes them feel poor. So the fact that they can't improve their situation, they have no options to upgrade their home without spending a lot of money, just has, has a huge impact on just your emotional well-being in addition to your, your uh, physical well-being. And that's something that I completely discounted before actually taking the two weeks to spend time there. Gaia learned so much on this trip, but it took time. That kind of thing, it just wasn't, I wasn't used to. I was, able, I was used to trying to churn out a lot really, really quickly. But spending the time and the energy empathizing and learning and listening and doing all of that has helped me in so many ways. I go back to insights I had from those first two weeks in Rwanda even now. And it's just the, the ability to let go of having to come up with an answer quickly and just be present and be in the moment and listen and learn and, you know, ask the question that you don't really think is maybe not that relevant, but, um, and you, and you wouldn't ask if you had limited time, but you do ask because you think maybe there's something there might lead to this phenomenal insight that helps you either right then and there or in two years later. And you just, you just never know um, what, what kind of thing you're going to learn. So back in the U.S., Gaia and soon-to-be co-founder Rick Zizou spent two semesters researching and prototyping flooring options. They discovered earthen floors, floors that use natural and fairly accessible materials like clay, rocks, sand, and a natural oil to seal a waterproof surface. It looked like a viable solution, but the only way to know for sure was to take the time to try it out. So they went back to Rwanda, and through iterations with local masons using local materials, they created a working prototype, a flooring solution nearly 80% cheaper than concrete floors, and something that people at the base of the pyramid could afford. At this point, the class was done, and Gaia earned her MBA. She had a consulting job all lined up, but instead, she moved to Rwanda, launching Earth Enable, a social enterprise on a mission to eliminate dirt floors. 
So this whole idea, defining the problem and coming up with a solution, everything's been centered around the customers. And for Gaia, this means letting go, recognizing that she doesn't have all the answers. Training myself to have the humility to just know what I don't know and be as humble as possible in asking questions, even if they sound stupid, about how things work. And I'll, I'll do this all the time. I'll come out and just be like, guys, how does how do the Itchabina actually work? And, and those are these um, like Roscoe's rotating savings groups. I'll just go out into the middle of the office and just ask, like, how do you join one? To them, it's like a very obvious answer. And it's silly that I don't know the answer, but I don't know the answer. So <laughs> knowing how to ask um, and being comfortable asking and being comfortable uh, just being actively the one with the least expertise in the room, but recognizing what my value add and what my skills are. So it takes a bit of humility to recognize how little we can do on our own. Um, and I think that was, that was a bit of a learning curve for me. About a year ago, someone on our team suggested a do-it-yourself product, an alternative to full-service installation by Earthenable Masons. And to me, this was just ridiculous. Like, the idea of this was it was going to be bad quality because they didn't have professional Masons doing it. Like, how are they going to know what to do? How is this training going to work? Does, does, no one's going to want this. Um, it's, it's just not worth it. But against her initial instincts to scrap it, they went to customers to try a prototype. The result? It's more work and it's harder to do, but it's half the price. Creating a business model, which I was like, yeah, no one's going to want to do this themselves. Why would they want to do it themselves? We well, tried. It. It's like, of course they want to do it themselves if it's cheaper. And then the, be- the best part is actually that we found at the trainings, people kept bringing local masons, like neighbors that they had, um, to build the floor or to, to get trained in building the floor instead of them doing it. We we're like, whoa, that's brilliant. <laughs> like you're so it's and this isn't a mason on our payroll. This is just some random guy from the village who uh, has done some masonry work before. Like maybe it's a son, maybe it's a brother, but it's it's somebody oh, else with slightly more experience. And then we realized like we should just amp that. Like we should just take what people are are doing the way that they have kind of hacked and and develop another whole product. So now we have Ishama, and that product is essentially like Angie's List. So we have um, we have photos of the masons and star ratings for them. And customers rate the masons too, creating a database of flooring contractors. So there's the full service product, hiring Earthenable masons to do the whole thing for you. There's the lowest cost do it yourself option, and then there's this Angie's List type product in between. And this is now the most popular product that Earthenable offers. And so from the business side of things, it makes total sense. From the customer side of things, it makes total sense. The customers came up with this idea. And then we just built on it and tried to add a layer of transparency into it. Okay, and now I want to share with you some numbers because this is pretty amazing. Since launching in 2014, Earthenable has employed over 80 people full-time and installed over 50,000 square meters of flooring. This means 8,000 Rwandans in over 300 different villages no longer have to live on a dirt floor, and they can lead healthier lives. Now, as her business grows, Gaia's felt pressure to spend less time in the field and more time creating financial reports or talking with investors. And these are some of the things that she knows the best. But at least once a week, she goes to where she can learn the most to be there right next to customers, hear what they're saying, get their feedback, learn insights, look around, 
find out. You just, the mind-blowing things all the time, just wandering around and you've learned something. But it's, it's, it takes time. It's, it's not efficient. It's not, um, there's, there's tons of stuff that I have to do on computers, whether it's writing grant reports or, um, or putting together contracts or whatever. But really carving out that time and making time for it, even though it might not be urgent, but it is the most important day of the week, for sure. Knowing what we don't know can lead us to something better. Sarah Kronk's brother Charlie is on the autism spectrum, which makes it difficult for him to fully understand social cues. So when he started high school almost 10 years ago, he had trouble fitting in. He wasn't able to easily make friends, and that left him feeling anxious and depressed. And then one day out of the blue, a popular upperclassman at our school named Jared uh, waved Charlie over to his lunch table and introduced my brother Charlie to all of his friends and eventually encouraged my brother to join the school swim team. And having that group of friends, that team environment, a place to go after school every day, you know, parties to go to on the weekends, it completely turned his high school experience around. It was like when this one student opened the door to include him and gave him that chance, all, all of a sudden everyone else in our high school realized what an awesome guy he is too. And to this day, you know, he's incredibly popular. I can't go anywhere in my hometown without people wanting to stop and talk to him. You know, it just, it just took that one person to be able to see past his limitations and see what a great guy he is. It was this story and seeing the impact that students can have on each other that led Sarah to found the Sparkle Effect. The Sparkle Effect is an organization that helps students to start inclusive cheer and dance teams. So Sarah started high school a year after Charlie and became a cheerleader. And while performing routines and practicing, she realized how this sport could be adapted for a variety of skill levels. And she thought that this might be a way to include her peers with disabilities, the people that are often left out. So she and a few friends took this idea to their coach and school administrators. And they got approval to try it for one game and see how it goes. So they formed a team and called themselves the Spartan Sparkles. To be honest, I was very nervous for the first game. We had a very small team to begin with, just five students with disabilities and five varsity cheerleaders that had signed on to sort of run the team. and. We had practiced for a couple weeks in our school cafeteria, which was a very, you know, cloistered environment. Um, you know, it was quiet, just the 10 of us, very intimate. Um, taught them, you know, enough cheers to get through the first game. But um, when we got to the football stadium that night, of course, it's completely packed because it's a small town in Iowa, Friday Night Lights, it's a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> and our student section um, to this day is notoriously rowdy. Like the senior boys all paint their chests and <laughs> oh wear the gosh. crazy mohawks and are yelling at the top of their lungs. And I'm thinking, oh my God, why did we ever <laughs> think this was going to work? And this is going to be too much pressure and it's going to be too overwhelming. And But when we, when the girls, all the sparkles showed up in, in uniform and walked out onto the field with us arm in arm, it, they looked like celebrities. They were all smiling from ear to ear. They looked just so incredibly joyful and so excited to be part of the game night experience. And the entire, you know, senior section, our whole student body stood up and started chanting like, let's go sparkles, let's go. 
and you know the parents are are sobbing (laughs) it was hard for me not to cry and I'm like you know on the sidelines with the team and uh that night our principal said as long as I'm here there will be a sparkles team the girls on the sparkles team made genuine friendships and students with disabilities found confidence and when they saw that we believed in them and their ability to do, uh, to be on the cheer team, to, you know, be part of the team, all that, that then they sort of started to believe more in themselves too. And a lot of those students and ended up joining the school choir or the school band. Some started doing theater productions and our school became this amazing welcoming place where, you know, when my brother was in high school and before that, it would have been unheard of for a student with a disability to be part of, you know, a drama production or something like that. The Sparkles had created something unique, and people from neighboring communities wanted to get their kids involved. I grew up right on the border of Iowa and Illinois on the Mississippi River, and we had families moving from the Illinois side to the Iowa side when their daughters were in elementary school in the hopes that there would be an opening by the time their daughter was in high school. That didn't feel right. and We were glad that there was all that excitement around it, but uh, we didn't want to have to tell people that we had created this program based on inclusion and then have to turn people away and say, sorry, we're at capacity. Sarah wanted to make it easy for any student to start an inclusive cheerleading team. And so I wrote out, you know, every step that uh, we had taken to start our team and put it on a website. And that was the beginnings of the Sparkle Effect and our efforts to get this started in more schools. And Sarah began her campaign. She searched online for news stories or press releases about cheer teams that had a history of community service. And once she found them... I wrote them a letter saying, hi, I'm a cheerleader in Iowa, and I read about all the great things you do, and I'm starting this thing called the Sparkle Effect, and if you want to do it, here's my website. But it didn't work the way she had planned. In our first year that we incorporated the Sparkle Effect, we only generated two new inclusive teams, and they were both, you know, within a 15-mile radius of the town that I grew up in, and my big goal at the time was that I was going to start a hundred teams. And I thought, you know, since it had sort of caught on like wildfire in our community that like, I was just going to basically be able to wave my magic wand and a hundred teams would (laughs) come out of the woodwork. Um, of course that's not really how things work. And my biggest mistake, the biggest thing I struggled with in, in the beginning was that I was terrified to ask anybody for help. I thought that because I was so young and because I deep down knew that I didn't really know what I was doing or how I was going to do it, that if I reached out to people and asked for help, that they were going to think that I was underqualified or that I was, you know, stupid or like, who does she think she is to try to, you know, make this thing bigger than it needs to be. Asking for help means admitting what we don't know. And Sarah wasn't yet ready to do that. But after she was invited to New York by Do Something, the world's leading organization for youth and social change, she found that she wasn't alone. And when I traveled to that New York trip and and met all these other young people that were doing the same kinds of things that I was doing, I realized that none of us knew what we were doing. Like, And of course, and how could we? And hearing their stories and hearing how all of them were just kind of figuring it out as they went along and getting as much advice as they could and joining as many groups as they could. I just realized that that's really the key is to never stop asking for help, to always be curious, to always, you know, to stay true to to what 
you want to do and what you want to accomplish, but to really try to collaborate with as many people as possible and get as many people on your team. Knowing what we don't know can lead us to something better because then we can do the somewhat uncomfortable thing of asking for help. This is really hard for me too. But let's start with some great news. There's people that want to help. People are generous. I've reached out to dozens of entrepreneurs running successful social enterprises, getting press from major news outlets, and they've agreed to spend time sharing personal stories with a complete stranger starting a brand new podcast. So here's a couple of tips to get help. Can you help me? Won't get you anywhere. The entrepreneurs I've interviewed are specific. For example, they ask for advice on how to hire their first employee, or send out a request for a set of 10 laptops that they need for their students, or ask for an introduction to an impact investor. Not everyone will say yes, but if they want to help, at least they know how. So who can help you? This is awesome because it might surprise you, as we'll find out in the rest of Sarah's story. You don't know who or what people know, so share what you need and see where it might lead. So Sarah had been afraid to ask for help. And then, of course, when I got over that and realized that people were eager and willing to help, they just needed to know how to do it and what I needed. I was actually very audacious then once I got over that initial fear. Sarah started by writing a letter to the CEO of Varsity Spirit, which is the largest cheer and dance company in the world. They are the world leader in cheerleading camps, competitions, apparel, the whole shebang. And I wrote their CEO and said, you know, hi, I'm a cheerleader in Iowa, and I really admire your company and everything that you've done to make cheerleading what it is today. And I would just really love to get your advice and, you know, any any help that you can give me getting this off the ground. And he put me in contact with someone in the marketing department and basically said, we'll do whatever you need. And wow. I was like, score. <laughs> yeah. I was not expecting to hear back at all, let alone for them to basically say, you name it, we'll make it happen. They became an early partner, and they still are today, helping to promote the sparkle effect at their national championships and providing brand new uniforms to the teams. And as a quick side note, after college, Sarah was offered a job at Varsity Spirit and works in their marketing department while still being able to run the sparkle effect. And the woman that she was first put in touch with when she was 15 is now her boss. So Varsity Spirit was a huge help. But Sarah was still looking for ways to spread the word and wanted to help launch more teams. Remember, she's still in high school with no marketing budget. But she could still ask for help. Uh, and so I started reaching out to national news outlets like People Magazine. And um, they actually ended up running a feature on us back in September of 2009. Now, of course, there were rejections. But overall, asking for help had gone pretty well. And then there was a phone call. This was like back when I still had like a landline at my house. And we still had caller ID. And I go down, I hear the phone ringing, go downstairs and see Harpo Studios on the caller ID in oh my, my parents' house. <laughs> and my mom comes in through and I'm like, Mom, are you, do you want me to answer it? Like, <laughs> I was, you know... <laughs> I started freaking out just then, and uh, the producer called, and she was like, hi, I'm, you know, she sounded very glamorous, and I, she was like, hi, I'm a producer for the Oprah Winfrey Show, and <laughs> we recently uh, have been working with People Magazine. And after seeing what the Sparkles were doing, they invited them on the show. And, you know, it was just sort of like, how can this be real? Like, how can this really be happening? 
And by the time the show aired, we were starting to receive 100 emails a day from people across the country wanting to donate, wanting to start a team in their area. And it was huge. It was a game changer for us. So Sarah met a goal of starting 100 teams. In fact, there are over 200 teams across the U.S. that students have launched with the help of the Sparkle Effect. These teams have directly impacted over 10,000 students with and without disabilities. But more importantly, kids across the country are fitting in. I came back to my high school when I was in college to see my little brother play on the varsity basketball team. And one of the original Sparkles walked into the game, not in uniform, um, you know, just munching on some popcorn, having a good time. And I nudged my mom and I said, oh, look, you know, there's there's Claire. Do you know if the Sparkles are performing tonight? Because she's not in uniform. And my mom said, no, I don't I don't think they're performing tonight. I think she's just here hanging out with her friends. Oh, neat. <laughs> and I was just like, how cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, it, our school just wasn't like that. Uh, when I was there and you know now they've had a sparkles program now both of our our cheer and dance teams have uh, inclusive programs and it's just clearly become such a strong way that my high school identifies itself relying on ourselves we're only as good as what we know but when we embrace what we don't know we can find the best solutions get help from the experts and have limitless possibilities Knowing what we don't know can lead us to something better. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about Gaia or Sarah, go to changemakerpodcast.com. Also on the site, you'll find tools for problem solving and resources about asking for help. So be sure to check that out too. Music is by Lee Rosevere and Josh Harlan. And I want to say a special thanks to the Changemaker launch team. Bo, Becca, Carrie, Jean, Jer, my husband who made the Poop Nugget story possible, Katie, Lily, Matt, Pat, and Tony. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. And thank you for sharing these stories. And if you like this episode, please tell one friend about our show. We are overwhelmed with negative news, but there's people doing really great things. So let's spread some more good. I'm Jackie Biederman, and you've been listening to Changemaker. Maker.